can turn there with me. Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17. Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17. Please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to him, Yes, have you not read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we give you thanks for the gift of your word. Even as we give Bibles to these young ones, Lord, we give thanks that you have given your word to us and to your people for generations. Lord, you didn't have to speak. You did not have to come to us. You did not have to pursue us. You did not have to save us, but you did. And you've poured out your love on us. And so we give thanks. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our hearts through the preached word today. Let us hear what we need to hear. Convict where we need to be convicted. Refresh and comforted where we need to be comforted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, one of the hobbies I picked up during COVID was mountain biking. Uh, apparently, biking has been huge during COVID because if you go to a bike shop or try to buy a bike, you kind of can't. They're all back-ordered. Uh, but uh, it's been a real blessing to me, this opportunity to get out into nature, ride the trails, um, the challenge. Uh, I've got cuts and bruises all over to, to prove it, but it's, it's a lot of fun, and you get a workout at the same time. That's the key. Working out and having fun. Uh, that's hard to come by. Um, uh, and there's lots of techniques to master or to improve on to be good and to fall less. One of the, one of the big ones that I've been working on for a long time is, is keeping your head up. Keeping your head up. With all the twists and turns and the rocks and the roots, it's easy to keep your eyes down on the trail right by your front wheel, but when you do that, you don't see the rock that's coming. You don't see the turn or the hill or the twist, and so uh, it's much easier to fall, uh, and so you've got to learn to keep your head up. Yes, you've got to look down, but you've got to keep looking up. Look at where the trail is going, and it makes the whole process a lot easier, and, and as I've spent a lot of time on the trails this year, I thought this is a great metaphor for the Christian Life. There are so many twists and turns in our days, so many unexpected events, especially during COVID, that it's easy for us to have our, our head stuck in this downward position, buried in the day-to-day. 
But it's imperative for us to keep our heads up and to look at Christ, to remember where he is leading us, to remember who we are. And so just like in mountain biking, we've got to learn this technique of of keeping our head up even as we return to deal with the uh, issues that we face in the day. Um, And in many ways, I think that's what our, our passage is teaching us this morning as we see Jesus come to the temple and cleanse it uh, by casting many out. So Jesus is entering his last week of his earthly ministry. We, we saw weeks ago that Jesus uh, realized, or that God told him, the Father told him, that his time had come, and he turned his face to Jerusalem. And three times he told his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem where I'll be arrested, I'll be uh, mocked, I'll be flogged, I'll be crucified, and on the third day, I will rise again. And we've been walking, Matthew has been leading us, following Jesus over these last three or four weeks with these little vignettes, these little pictures of Jesus showing us who he is and why he came. And both Jesus and Matthew have the same reason. Jesus knows that he is leaving and he wants to train and teach his disciples, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, because this is who you are to be. And what you are to be about. So we've seen Jesus teach his disciples through, through a myriad of interactions with a rich young ruler, but also with disciples coming to Jesus and asking to sit on his right and on his left. Jesus taught them that in the kingdom of God, things are backwards from this earthly kingdom. In the kingdom of God, those who are first will be last. But those who are last will be made first. In the kingdom. Um, He said that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And so then we see Jesus showing how he is to be a servant, even as he's being followed by a great throng of followers celebrating him as the coming king. He stops and he heals two blind men. And then last week, he finally arrives at Jerusalem and he enters in and he's receiving praise and and, praise. Uh, admiration as the son of David, which was the Jewish way of saying Messiah. People were saying, this is the king. He's finally here, the one we've been waiting for for ages and generations who will save us from our enemies. And yet he entered on a donkey. He is the rightful king, but he is a humble king who comes to serve. Now we see Jesus He's arrived at Jerusalem, and what does he do? His, his very first act is to go to the temple. This is the most important location in the city of David. This is the seat of Jewish culture, political power, religious power. It is the place where God dwells. But what does he do when he gets there? He gets there, and he does something which seems quite out of character. He goes, and he's turning over tables. He is casting people out. He's damaging people's property and throwing their wares to the ground. And so we have to ask, why? (laughs) What is Jesus doing? What has gotten him so riled up? Um, And this reminds me, uh, we, I've heard about this for a long time, but there's a show called The Chosen. Has anybody watched The Chosen? Uh, It's really good. I'm kind of late to that party. I've heard that from lots of people. Um, one of the things the show does best is that it, 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 it uh, 
creatively shows what happens between the events. So Jesus here arrives at the temple at Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple and you think, man, what's going on? That, that show does a great job of kind of uh, giving plausible explanations of, of Jesus' um, actions, and I, I commend that show to you. But this is the question we're left with. Why is Jesus doing this? Well, probably for lots of reasons, but, but one that Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus is not only a merciful Lord and a humble king, but he is also a mighty prophet, and he is the Lord of the temple. It is his prerogative to correct, to confront, to rebuke his people when they have gotten off course, when they have taken their eyes off of God. So we're going to walk through our passage, as is our custom, and we're going to ask these questions. What made Jesus so mad? What did he do about it? And what does it mean for us? Okay, what made Jesus so mad? What did he do about it? And what does it mean for us? So, first, what got Jesus so mad? Well, uh, you need to know some background, some cultural information that's not easy to see in some of these passages. Jews came to Jerusalem at least once, if not multiple times a year, for worship, but they came from all over the Roman Empire, and so when they arrived, they needed to do what we do when we travel from one country to another. They needed to exchange their currency for the local currency. They needed to do that to eat, to find lodging, but also to purchase the, the needed sacrifices they had to make at the temple. If you read the Old Testament law, there were certain customary sacrifices that Jews needed to bring for various reasons. One was just the annual sacrifice, but also some were specific, whether they be lambs or goats or pigeons or grain or bulls, anything, lots of different Things were used in sacrifices. Now this could have and should have, and at one time happened, this money changing and this purchasing of their sacrifices would have happened outside of the temple. But over time, the practice was brought into the temple for a couple of reasons. One was convenience, right? I'm going there anyway. You know, just put some lambs there on the side. I'll pick one up on the way to the priest. But also... Uh, By bringing this practice into the temple, uh, we know that the priests themselves began to profit, right? The, the, um, just like when you exchange money today, right? There's a fee associated with that, and so the, the temple itself, the priests were profiting, and, and, uh, at some times, they would say, you know what, you could buy a, a lamb somewhere else, but the only place to really get a spotless lamb is here in the temple, and so they were actually extorting money, from the people. In some ways, it's, it's uh, <laughs> like going to the movies, you know, and they don't let you bring in your own food, and so you pay $25 for a Coke and some popcorn. You're like, good Lord. And it's not even that good. But yeah, the priests, they controlled uh, the area, but by also providing convenience, the people were happy to pay. Uh, it, it made things easier them. But the other bit of important information is that the buying and selling was taking place in the outer courts of the temple. The temple didn't really give room. It didn't have a place for this because it wasn't supposed to happen in there. Uh, And this outer court was also called the court of the Gentiles. This was the only part of the temple which non-Jews were allowed to enter. 
And so this is where those who were curious, those who were interested, those who had heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is where they could come and pray to their God. It's where they could hear the preaching of the Hebrew Bible. And so these practices of commerce were crowding them out and leaving no room for the outsider, the stranger, or the seeker. And we can see this in Jesus' rebuke. We can see what is driving him because in his rebuke, in verse 13, he's actually referring to two different Old Testament passages. You'll remember uh, in verse 13, he said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Well, in this, Jesus refers to these Old Testament prophecies or passages that give us some insight. That first passage is uh, Isaiah 56, and it says this. The foreigner, right, so the outsider, the non-Jewish person, who, j- who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps Sabbath and does not profane it, And holds fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You see, the Lord's heart was for those who were not yet His. From the very beginning, when God called Abraham to him, he said, I am going to make you a light to the nations. And this is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, that yes, God has called to himself a people. He has set them apart. He's marked them with covenant. But over time, again and again, the Jewish people forgot God's heart. That he called them, yes, because he loved them, but he called them for a purpose, to be a conduit, a channel a way for those who are not his people to come in. And so Jesus was grieved. Jesus was angry. Jesus was passionate about this fact that God's people had forgotten God's heart and they had closed off this outer channel to invite the outsider in to hear the gospel, to be a light to the nations. But he goes on. He says, you have made my house of prayer into a den of robbers. And this is referring to Jeremiah chapter 7, and Francie read it in our confession of sin. This is a, this is a convicting passage. Let me, read it. Let me read it to you again. The Lord says to his people, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, right? That's a, f- a false god, a foreign god. And go after other gods that you have not known, and then... Come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You see, God's people had fallen into this terrible cycle of of going about life however they wanted, knowing the word of God, and yet living in sin in a myriad of ways, and then coming into worship at the temple and saying, ah, how blessed are we. We are the people of God, God's own possession. He has loved us. He has saved us. He has delivered us. And God says, that is not the mark of my people. 
My people who are called by my name are to live like my people. They are to reflect me and my character to the world. See, Jesus burned with passionate anger that was born out of love. As a, as a father loves his children, as a parent loves their child, when they are wayward, we can get passionate, right? We can get angry. Not out of wrath, but out of love. Know my heart. Know who you are to be. God wanted his people to be uh, those of integrity, those who live in the truth, who do right and not evil. And God loved his people enough to tell them the truth. I like what Frederick Bruner says about this passage and what Jesus is doing here. He says, when a church exists for comfort, to the exclusion of challenge, for grace and not for judgment, she becomes a hideout for thieves rather than a house of God. She also abandons the faithful exposition of the scriptures, which regularly treats both grace and judgment. Last week, we talked about the paradox of Jesus, how he was at one and the same time, he was the rightful king, high, lifted up, and full of glory, and yet he rode in on a donkey, showing that he is a servant, he is low, desiring intimate presence and relationship with his people. Well, today we see the other paradox of Jesus, that he is both grace and truth. He is both love and righteousness. Right? We need the love, we need the grace of God in order to live. But we also need the truth and the righteousness of God to call us out, to remind us of the truth, to warn us when we have gone astray and wandered from his paths because our actions have real impact in our own lives, in the lives of our children, in the lives of those around us. And we see it here in our passage. Jesus was angry because God's mission and really the heart, God's heart, had been hijacked by sin and selfishness. Rather than welcoming the outsider to hear of God's love and mercy, God's people had turned the temple into a place of unjust gain and exclusion. Uh, God's people had turned the temple uh, into a den in which they were robbing God of his purposes. They had made, right, it's like someone coming into your house and saying, well, let's just rearrange the furniture and uh, why don't you stay at the hotel? <laughs> it's not your house anymore. And brothers and sisters, doesn't this happen in the church? As I describe this, as I read this, as I think about this, uh, we do this all the time. We turn the house of God into something for our own benefit, for our own comfort, our own preference, our own convenience. Rather than being a house of prayer and worship, we turn God's house into a place of factions, which fight for power, complain about the things we don't like becomes about us rather than about God whom we come to worship and about his mission of which we are called to be a part. And so, beloved, we need to ask ourselves, 
how we are like the religious leaders of Jesus' day who profited from the worship of God. When you think about the church, when you think about being a Christian, when you think about who you are, is it more about you and your individual rights and what you deserve? Or is it about God and his kingdom, his name, and his purposes? Or are we like the worshipers who cared more about their own selfish convenience than for the mission of God? Is, is worship here to uh, fit your desires, or are you to come and to fit your desires to God's desires? God knows our hearts, <laughs> and God is not mocked. And so it is right and just for Jesus to come to us on a regular basis and call us to, again, what Frederick Bruner calls a fearless moral inventory. What's going on in your own heart? Why do you come to church? What are you looking for? It's good and it's right to come seeking the Lord and asking him for grace, asking him for provision, laying out the desires of your heart to him. But if you are a child of God, then he says, come to me and make my desires your desires. Know that my ways are not your ways, and so you will be confronted on a regular basis to lay down your desires, your prerogatives, your rights, and to follow me. Um, and beloved, the Lord wants our hearts to reflect his hearts. Uh, it's not about shaming us. It's not about rubbing our faces in the dirt. But it's about rightly aligning our hearts. If our hearts are aligned with God's hearts, if we love what he loves, then we will be more joyful than we ever have been in the past. That's the lie of sin. That's the lie of selfishness. If God would just get my memo and do things the way I want to do things, my life would be great. But the truth is that we see on a regular basis that we're wrong. <laughs> We don't even know what we need. We don't even, uh, yeah, we don't know what we need. We know what we want. And yet God says, if you will heed my word and follow my path and love my heart, you will be full of peace and joy. Okay, well, what did he do about it? We see what made Jesus so mad, his passionate love for the Father's heart and his mission. Well, let's look at verses 14 to 17, the end of the passage. After, after he had done this, uh, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you not read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. Leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is one of the reasons why this is called the cleansing of the temple. It's sort of ironic or, or fascinating to see as Jesus heals what is sick in the temple, it is able to return to its rightful purpose. So as Jesus casts out the money lenders and as he moves out the commerce, Immediately, what do we hear? The lame, the sick, the blind, they come to Jesus and they are healed. But not only that, children 
are crying out to Jesus, Hosanna, which means, oh, save us, O Lord, the son of David. They see Jesus for who he is, and they worship him from a whole heart. What's fascinating is that the religious leaders, I mean, fascinating, ironic, disappointing, not surprising, it's the religious leaders who are indignant. They are blind to their Messiah who is there. They have too much at stake, too much to lose. Um, And so they ask, do you hear what they're saying? They are calling you the Messiah. They are so sure that this could not be their coming king. But Jesus' response is amazing. Listen to this. He says, yes, (laughs) yes, I hear what they are saying. But then he ups the ante. He says, have you not read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? Now he is referencing, again, another Old Testament scripture. It's Psalm chapter 8. But what's amazing (laughs) about this, if you go and read Psalm 8 verse 2, it talks about God preparing praise from him for him, praise from the mouth of infants and babes. But who is the praise for? The praise is for himself. The praise is for God. The praise is for Yahweh. <laughs> and so Jesus here says, yes, I hear what they are saying. They are calling me the son of David, which is just and right. I am the Messiah. I am the king. But in quoting this psalm, Jesus is giving a veiled reference to the fact that he is more than Messiah. He is actually God. Yahweh is here. And so the the full-hearted praise of these children, those who are sick and in need of healing coming to him, this is exactly who he is and why he came. And it is beautiful to behold for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so the point of all this is that once the temple is cleansed, it can return to its proper purpose. Um, Wholehearted worship, outsiders coming in, the lame and the sick being healed and restored. This is what the church is to be about. Beloved, we are just like Israel. We are no better and no worse. We get off course. We become selfish. We use our faith for selfish gain. And Jesus loves us enough to call us out, to call us to self-reflection and to repentance, to seek our hearts and to ask hard questions. Again, not to rub our face in our sin, but so that we will address it, so that we will repent and we will return to the path he has placed before us, reminding us of the heart of God and the mission of God to which we have been called. We were outsiders. We have been healed. We have been called in. And so let us not be led astray to think that all of this and all that Jesus is doing is really just about us, our wants, our selfishness. Now Jesus is calling us to lift up our eyes, to look to him, to be reminded of God's mission and heart, and to worship him from a whole heart. Beloved, we planted this church 12 years ago, depending on how you count. We planted it to be a neighborhood church in, of, and for our neighborhood, for our neighbors, that we might be a community of faith 
that exists in this place so that others might come in and taste and see that the Lord is good and join this community. It's the same call that was given to Israel to be a light to the nations. And even as I go, right, which I was reminded this week that this is, this is what Paul said, I planted, now it's time for another to water, but God will bring the growth. Even as I go, this remains your mission. And I can't think of a better message for my last Sunday to remind you that you have been called to a mission, a mission of love, a mission of God's love for you and for the outsider. And your presence here remains that mission, to worship God with a whole heart and to always be ready to invite and to welcome the outsider because that is God's heart. So beloved, let us lift up our eyes. Let us be reminded of the trail that God has set before us. Lift our eyes from uh, the day-to-day minutiae to see where Jesus is leading us. It is God's heart, and it is to be our heart. It is the heart of love for you and for the lost, to cleanse and to heal a hurting world. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, um, we thank you. We thank you that you are willing to tell us the truth, to confront us in love when we get off track. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you are doing your work in our hearts, convicting us uh, of where we have gone astray, comforting us of where we have been ashamed, but calling us back to yourself, full of love, full of forgiveness, and full of purpose. Lord, for your glory and honor we pray. Amen.